You are now listening to Testimonies with Terry. Welcome, everyone, to the first episode of Testimonies with Terry. I'm your host, Terry Skaggs, and thank you so much for tuning in and checking out this podcast. If you missed it, the trailer dropped last week, and that breaks down and describes what this podcast is going to be about. So if you didn't listen to it, a quick recap is that this podcast is going to feature testimonies of how God showed up in my guest's darkest and bleakest moments to bring victory, hope, and healing. And we're kicking off this podcast with just that. Who you're going to hear from today is someone who I've been told for a long time that I needed to meet due to our similar interests in psychology and 90s pop culture. And it finally happened. You guys get to hear my first ever conversation with someone who has been through a lot in her life and is ready to talk about it in full detail. You're going to hear an amazing testimony of how addiction turned into redemption. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Mackenzie Fuchs's testimony. All right, guys. So I am here with Mackenzie Fuchs. Mackenzie, thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks for coming in my home and talking with me today. I've known about you for a little while. You've you know met my wife and hung out with her, but you and I haven't really had a conversation yeah. other than just kind of in passing. Mm-hmm. So I think this is kind of a cool opportunity for people to just kind of like hear us get to know each other. Yeah, it's exciting. I know we both have some similarities in our things that we like um, as far as like 90s kids stuff. So oh, yeah. it's really fun and exciting. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So we're in McKinsey's basement right now. And behind me, they've got four or five awesome pinball machines, Teenage <laughs> Turtles and Ghostbusters and everything. So, uh, yeah, Ken's, what are some of your favorite like things from the 90s that you're yeah. really a, a fan of or passionate about? Yeah, I love Saved by the Bell. It's one of my favorites. I have like every DVD. And then another thing that I, I saw someone where we were at Tilt Pinball Bar a couple weeks ago, and there was a, a girl wearing a Camp Onawana t-shirt. And I loved Salute Your Shorts. So that was such a good show. I just love 90s anything like caboodles and just like looking back and seeing all the posts on Facebook about you're a 90s kid if you recognize this. And yeah, it's just fun. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm all about the 90s. You know, Mighty Morphin Power Rangers is my thing. But for me, it, it, it it's just an opportunity to kind of relive my childhood, yeah. you know, and, and think back to the days where there really was no stress, you know, yeah. no bills, <laughs> no, no, anything like that. You could just be a kid and have fun. What What is for you? What is it about the 90s that just kind of keeps pulling you back to that time of your life? Yeah, I think it's just the the innocence of everything. You really did like. I don't know. You just, you were just so hopeful about what the future was going to be like. And your parents did know everything and you weren't, you weren't scared. You weren't hurt about a lot of things. And it it was just, I don't know. There was an innocence about it that was, that was so great. Mackenzie, why don't we just kind of start off with uh, just kind of like your childhood? Like where did you grow up? What sure. was family life like for yeah. you? Um, so I grew up in Albany, Minnesota. Um, my parents were married. Uh, I have an older brother. Uh, we grew up on a golf course and my dad owned a construction company. Um, he and my mom they're still married. And, um, so I, I went to school at the same school from kindergarten all the way to graduation. So I knew the same kids from kindergarten to graduation. I, I knew them all. They knew me and it was really hard. So, um, uh, I don't know. It's hard. (laughs) This is where all the trouble started for me. Um, yeah. So, um, I think there was a part where, um, like 
I loved my family. I loved my parents. They were they were so good to me. My parents were so good to me. But it was the like the social relationships in school that were so hard. Like there's that part in adolescence where you know your your identity formation really moves off of your parents and who your parents say you are onto who do my friends say I am. And that was really hard for me because like they said I was bad. And it wasn't good. And so growing up in a small town was hard for me because I really wanted people to like me and they didn't. And that was hard. So going to school was hard for me. And then I went home. And so when I think of Saved by the Bell or things like that, like that was the fun times. Mm, That was the exciting times for me was like the shows that I really like to watch. And so that's kind of where, like, that's why I like those things is because that's where I had the fun. It was like watching those things. And so school was very stressful for me from a very young age. And um, my parents tried, like, really hard to, you know, the best they could to make it better. But they could only do so much, you know. And and I don't know. So it, it was hard from a very young age. What what was the contrast between what your parents were telling you about you compared to what your, your the kids at school were saying about you? Yeah, sure. Um, so I guess my parents were saying you're a good kid, or you know, it doesn't matter what they say. We know who you are. Um, I was overweight as a child, and so I was made fun of, like you're fat, or um, it was never like you're stupid or anything like that. It was you're fat or you're ugly. And those things as a kid, that hurts because you can't change that really fast and you don't think to change that. And so, um, my parents were like, that doesn't matter. And, um, but at the same time they were saying things like you shouldn't eat that and things like that. But so there were these conflicting messages, but at the same time, it was always like, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter, but it did matter. It did matter to me. It always hurt. It hurt a lot, you know? And that's, you know, it's got to be hard at any age to hear that. But you talked about the adolescence, you know, everyone at adolescence, you know, our bodies are changing, we're growing up mm-hmm. and and whatnot. And so I got to imagine that was super tough, especially at that part of your life. Yeah. And um, it did get better. So I think once, so coming out of elementary school into junior high in high school, we in Albany, we had like three or four different schools kind of come together into the high school. So then it was exciting because there's all these kids coming in that I never knew before. And it was like, yes, awesome. Like, I'm going to get to know kids that have never known me. I've never known them like a fresh start, a new chance to like know people. And things did get better. Like I did make new friends. And, um, uh, like my best friend from a different school did come in. So like things did get better. There were still the people in the background saying these things that I had always heard, but there was at least like some hope. Like I I did have this like core group of friends that I was like, okay, I can rely on these people. I can have fun with them. Like, so it wasn't all bad all the time. Um, But I think that when you're told something over and over and over again, it gets to the core of who you are. And it's really hard to change that. For sure. For yeah. sure. So w- when you talk about getting those core group of friends, like what grade would that have been? I'd say seventh and eighth grade. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, you look at that, you know, you start kindergarten at what, five, you know, six years old. And then by the time you're in seventh, eighth grade, you're, you know, 12, 13, maybe 14 years old. That's a long time for you to absorb just these, you know, ugly comments that people make and and for them to take root in in your mind. And so uh, it sounds like even though you did get those good group of friends who would speak life into you and encourage you that maybe in the back of your mind, those previous comments were still still kind of there, still kind of lurking. Yeah. And I think, you know, you don't know what you don't know. And I always thought, well, once I get away from these people or once I get out of this town or it was always about running away. But what I didn't know is it had it had been like kind of like 
grafted into me. Like I had taken on these messages. And so I couldn't get away from that. Like I had to like unlearn that before I could get better. And so I, once I got out of high school, I'm like, I'm running away from here as far as possible. I moved to Boulder, Colorado. Um, and, um, it didn't get better. I thought it was going to get better. It didn't get better. Um, that's when my substance abuse really got bad. And I hadn't talked about that at all yet. I should back up. Well, yeah. And I definitely want to get into that before we uh, go there. What was it about Boulder, Colorado that made you decide sure, to, yeah. to go there out of all places? Yeah. Okay. So backing up, um, when I was in high school, um, I had, like I had talked about, like just trying to run away. I was always looking for friend groups outside of Albany. I was just and there is nothing wrong with Albany. Josiah and I have talked about moving back there and raising our family there. There is nothing wrong with Albany. We love Albany. It is great. This is my experience, and mm -hmm. there is nothing wrong with the town or the people at all. Yeah. Um, so I just want to make that very clear. Um, uh, so I was just always looking to get away, to find new friends, to you know, so I started snowboarding because I thought that somehow made me cool, would make me likable. And, um, and I really, I was really good at it and I really enjoyed it. It was something I was passionate about. And I thought, well, I'll move to the mountains and I'll be cool and people will like me. And because it always had to be something I was doing or something that I could be to make people like me. I couldn't just be liked for me because that was impossible. Yeah. Like it always had to be something I was doing or something I was giving or something. It was always like out here or external, not internal. Yeah. I still deal with that. Yeah. Where you, you still feel like friendship and, and acceptance is, is based off what you can do, what you can offer instead of just who you are. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I don't know, maybe other people deal with that too. That's another thing I'm trying to learn is like how much of the things that I think are abnormal are actually normal. Yeah. 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 Well, and I think just by talking about this, we're normalizing it, right? Yeah. You know, and just, uh, I mean, I would imagine there's a lot of listeners who have similar experiences to that and, and similar feelings to what you have as far as just kind of that fight for acceptance and that fight for just love me for, for who I am. Mm-hmm. So kind of backing up again, then you move out to Colorado, think, Hey, you know, I'm going to live this snowboard lifestyle and, uh, make some new friends. So did that happen? Yeah. So, um, I joined a snowboard team at our school. It was, um, the university of Colorado at Boulder. They had a snowboard team. I joined it and there was a lot of partying that happened. Um, Boulder is known for, um, like, uh, a big um, 420 celebration, so like marijuana and things like that. That definitely happened on the snowboard team, and so lots of partying. And um, I definitely got caught up in the partying, and so it was it was more being a part of the partying than the snowboarding. We still snowboarded, but it was more of a party lifestyle. And um, was that your first exposure to substances? Yeah. So I, my parents scared me about substances. <laughs> so um, I remember like, it was like, you do not drink. Like, I remember I had a friend in high school. She, she liked to party. And so I was, my parents always had like a fridge full of like beer and I don't know. I didn't even know. So I'm like, oh, I'm going to be cool and like get her some beer. So I grabbed some O'Doul's and brought it to her. And she's like, this isn't even alcohol. This is non-alcoholic. And I'm like, well, I don't know. I don't drink. So like, I thought I was being cool and giving her something. Yeah, and that, it was, that, that failed. Yeah. So, um, no, I, so anyway, I, um, I, I had never drank before. And so going out there, it was like, just such a 180. I I really went off the deep end for sure. And I don't know about you and and what you were taught in Albany, but you know I grew up in Foley and we had the Dare program come yes. through, right? <laughs> yeah. And you know just say no <laughs> mm -hmm. to to drugs, and they talked about peer pressure. And when you were in Colorado, do you feel like 
your 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 choice to actually start, you know, using substances, do you feel it was more peer pressure based? Do you feel like it was more you wanting to cover up and and um you know get kind of disguise and distract the the negative feelings you had about yourself at the time? Was it a mixture? Like what what was it for you that just kind of made it click in your mind that, yep, I'm 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 gonna start doing substances? Yeah, I think that was a that's a really good question. Um I think it was both. So um I it definitely made me feel really good about who I was. I was like, wow, like I'm actually like really fun and I can have fun and I can be funny and I can be cool and people like me. And, and then there was this part of it, like, well, they're drinking so I can drink. And it was kind of a mixture of both. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 And so when you talk about using substances, did you have a substance of choice that you would Mm -hmm. go to? Yeah. So definitely just, just, like alcohol for sure at first. Um, I did start. So once, so my freshman year, I was definitely a part of the snowboard team. And then those relationships kind of fizzled out after a while because they kind of realized I wasn't as cool as I thought I was. And, um, I just, I don't know. They just fizzled out. And, um, I started seeing a guy, um, and he sold marijuana. He sold subs, he sold weed. And, um, so I started using marijuana and it, it probably became my substance of choice just because he was using it more often than I guess both, I guess we were using both, but yeah. So while I was with him, it was that because it was there, I guess I never got into anything really illicit. Um, I, but I guess that's all, it depends on who you talk to, what illicit is. Sure. Yeah. Sure. So, Drinking alcohol, you know, using marijuana, you said that it helped you feel better about yourself. How about when that wore off? When maybe, you know, that high wore off or, you know, coming down from a hangover wore Mm -hmm. off. Did you still feel better about yourself? Um, I just wondered, I, okay, so no, I, I was seeing a therapist three times a week while I was a freshman in college because, okay, back up. So, um, I've never talked about this before, but, um, I, I was really, I had body dysmorphia and I was getting a consultation for liposuction at, I was like 17 or 18 years old. And so the doctor was very smart and referred me to um a therapist she's like this is not normal she's like this is not a normal um appointment for me to have you need to go see somebody and she was very smart to do that yeah so i started going to see a therapist and i was seeing her three times a week and i just i didn't feel good about myself i i so no i mean i would i would feel really good when i was high or when i was drunk and then once that wore off i was like I hate myself. I don't like who I am. And I wish I could be like this person. I wish I could be like Libby. I wish I could be like Roxy. I wish I could be like, there were these core group of girls that I wished I could be like, and I wasn't them. I was Mackenzie and I did not like Mackenzie. And I wished I could be anybody but me. And that's what fueled the substance use. So, Mm. Wow. Like you said, though, that doctor was super smart, you know, for someone at 17, 18 years old to want liposuction, that's awfully young. But then you say that you were in therapy three times a week. And in, in my uh, experience, in my practice, that's really rare for mm-hmm. yeah. for someone to come in three times a week. Yeah. So I think that just, you know, I say that to you guys to just kind of indicate the severity of what you were going through. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think it, it's helpful too, to say I wasn't making much headway. Like it, I was at a big standstill because I wasn't taking the advice of my therapist because I was well, I mean, I mean, you can't, you, you can't, you can't be, a, you cannot be abusing substances to the point that I was and not be seeking treatment and just be going to therapy. I mean, I guess you can, but it's, it, you're just not going to get anywhere. Yeah, you're not treating the whole problem. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Did you start going to treatment at all during that process? No, I never, I, I've only gone to treatment one time. 
Okay. Mm -hmm. Did you end up doing the liposuction or did... Um, I did. I did okay. end up doing it. Yeah. So that's the first time I've ever said that. Wow. But yeah, yeah, I did. Yeah. And it didn't do anything. I mean, it didn't... It, it made me feel better for a short period of time, but did it didn't fix the problem. I mean, the problem was always internal. Like I was saying from high school, like I was running away from something that was so internal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you're in college when you get liposuction yep. done, it still didn't kind of fix, uh, mm -hmm. the problems that you were hoping it would fix. So then did that just, uh, develop into uh, more substance use, you know, more intense substance use or w what kind of happened after that? I think that the problem, it just really spiraled out of control with the relationship I was in because it just became this habitual thing. Like he would come over at night, we would just start drinking and then it was just this thing every night. And then I decided to move back home. And even though he wasn't there, I still was in this pattern of abuse and I was all alone now. And it was just my routine and it just got worse and it got worse. And what made you decide to move back home? I didn't have any friends and I really was lonely and I thought moving would solve the problem. Yeah. So you moved back home. Like, did you move back in with your family or did you get a place of your own? Yeah, or? I got an apartment and, um, and then I started going to school at St. Cloud State because I hadn't finished my bachelor's because I had no idea what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. I, I I was really floundering in school. That's another subject we haven't touched is like I was like a full-time student during this whole like time. Yeah. Like there's that too. <laughs> like amidst, you know, the snowboarding and the partying. Oh yeah, I went to class too. <laughs> yeah, I there is that too. I was actually pursuing an education at that time. <laughs> But it sounds like though, like academically, it was yeah, it just wasn't it, good. It was never like on my radar. I I never knew what I. I mean, how can you know what you want to do when you don't know who you are? I don't know. I like that doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. What What were you majoring in at that time? Environmental sciences. And did you have any idea like what you wanted to do with that? Yeah. Um, our family business is um, wind energy and solar energy. And so I was thinking I would come and work for the family business. That's not where my heart is. That's never been where my heart is. So um, I was just doing it because it seemed like a good fit. Yeah. I don't know. but It seemed logical. Right. Yeah. 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 And so you you go back to St. Cloud State, and do you end up finishing your degree? No, and I ended up really going off the deep end. I mean, it was I. I mean, I was failing all my classes at this point because it was just. I mean, I was just drinking into oblivion every day. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And it sounds like really lonely at yeah. that time. Yeah. I I guess there's a. I guess there is a, a part of this time I had had a relationship with someone that I really wanted to work out and it didn't. And I got really crazy. And that's when the substance abuse got really bad. Um, I ended up meeting Josiah, who is my husband now, and I was able to somehow hide my substance abuse for a while. He and I were dating. Um, not for very long. And we moved in together because he had proposed to me after like, it was like two weeks. Like, wow. He knew like right away. He's like, <laughs> I want to marry you. I don't know why. Cause I was like, I didn't, I don't know. Looking back, it's like, why would you want to marry me? But he knew, <laughs> I don't know. Um, but he proposed and we moved in together. So when you're, when you think about it back then, I was, I was I was an alcoholic. So my timeline I is very foggy. Yeah. So this is a period of time where it's like, what what how long how long was that? But um we had moved in together and he was working at a bank. He and I I thought I had till like five to be done drinking for the day. So I started drinking right when he went to work at like eight-ish in the morning. And then um I'm like, okay, I have to be fine by five. I have to be good by the time he gets home. Well, he got off work early and I was passed out in our bed 
when he got home and he came in and he's like, what is going on? Like, what's wrong with you? And I was like, oh, no. Like. You were caught. I was found out. I was caught. And I had the the bottle in the bed. So he knew exactly what was going on. And um, and I was like, please don't tell my parents. Like, please don't tell anybody. Like, And he's like, well, what's going on? And I'm like, I and I, since I was caught, I was like, I have I have a problem. Like, if I just said I had a problem, maybe it would go away, mm. you know? Yep. And so the thing about, the weird thing about alcohol, alcoholics is that we hide our empty bottles in, like, the weirdest places. So I had them hidden, like, everywhere. And I remember, like, he would find them and be like, are you still drinking? Are you still drinking? And I'd be like, no, I'm not. But it was it was just so weird. It was... I don't know. It it also sounds really stressful yeah. to, you know, it sounds like, you know, he'd just go around the house and he'd find these empty bottles. And I don't know, was there like this internal battle where you wanted to deny that you had a problem, but the other part of you was just like, oh man, I, I, I just, I, I need to be set free from this. I did not want to be set free. I, so, okay. So and then at that point, I was taking Ritalin, but I was taking like, so I had a 30-month or a 30-day supply of Ritalin that I would take in three days. So I was abusing a Ritalin prescription as well. So And, and what was the reason for Ritalin? I had a, a diagnosis of ADHD. I thought the reason I was failing in school is because I had ADHD, but the reason I was failing in school is because I was an alcoholic. And that just did not work out well for me. Yeah. So um, anyway, so I was just a hot mess. I was either abusing Ritalin or I was abusing alcohol. And I remember being in our living room and thinking, there can't, how can people be happy? How, how, can, how can I see people outside being happy? Like, what are they so happy about? I honestly remember sitting there thinking, I will never, ever, ever be happy about anything in my life. What's the point of stopping drinking? And I always think about that because my life now is so, so, so good. Mm. I just wish that, I wish that, alcoholics could see the best day of their life on the worst day of their life. Wow. That's a good word. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's, it's just, it, it really is so good being sober. When, when you would see people be happy, what, what did that look like? Like for you, what did happiness actually look like? It looked fake. It looked fake to me. Yeah, it it looked like um I was so angry. I was so angry all the time that I thought that there's no way anybody could be happy. Like that looked fake to me. It looked like um yeah, it just looked fake. Yeah. You meet Josiah, you get engaged, 2 weeks later, you are found out, you know, to be an alcoholic by him. What what happens next? Yeah, so um, I try to keep it together. I do relapse. I think I had it together all of like two days. Like I, I stayed sober for like two days and I relapsed and he's like, I'm going to go and tell your parents if you don't. So we, I don't know what, like as an alcoholic, you're like up at the weirdest times of the day. Cause I remember driving over to my parents at like two o'clock in the morning. And now I'm like, why, why were we doing that? Why were we going to tell them at two o'clock in the morning? Why weren't we just like, wait till like eight or nine? <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so we went at like two o'clock in the morning and rang the doorbell and they're like, what's wrong? What happened? And I went in there crying and I told them I, I have a drinking problem. And it was like, you saw in their faces, like all the pieces come together. Because one, I had been stealing from them. 
um, money, alcohol, like all sorts of stuff. And two, I was so mean to them. Like I was so awful to my family. Like I would snap on them. I would like, I, I was so awful to my mom, especially. And, um, like, I think uh, the thing I regret the most is the way I treated my family. Um, and so it like, it just all came together for them. And, they more than anything, they wanted to help me. And so, so I'm like, I can do this. I can get sober on my own. And so they trusted me. They're like, okay, yeah, you can do it. You can get sober. And so, um, I, I, I really did think that I was going to try to do that and it, it wasn't going to happen. Like I wasn't, it, I didn't have the skill set on my own to make that happen because I could have done that any other time if that was the truth. Sure. So, sure. um, move or thinking back, um, when I lived in Boulder, I got a minor and, um, I had to go to, um, like a drinking class or some sort of like remediation for that. And that was at Recovery Plus in St. Cloud. And so I knew about Recovery Plus, a treatment center locally. And so I was like, well, I know about this treatment center that I had gone to previously just for these remediation classes where they talk to you about, you know, not drinking and driving and things like that. I'm like, well, I know about this treatment center. I can go there and see if they'll t- like if they'll do treatment for me. So he's like, well, when are you going to like, this was the hardest day of my life. I think was this, it was this internal struggle, like this evil side of me butting up against this, like, it's almost like this freedom or relief side of me just wanting, they were just going head to head. And, um, like the drinking side of me wanting to stay drinking and this treatment side wanting to get help. And my dad just broke down on my floor crying. And he's like, I don't want you to die. And I just, I don't think if it was, if it wasn't for him saying that, I don't know that I would have gotten help. Wow. And I just like, he means so much to me that, that, that really broke me. Like seeing how much it hurt him. Yeah. He deals with a lot of stress, but nothing ever has brought him to that. And so I knew how much I meant to him. And our relationship had been riddled with stress. Um, so we we drove together right after that. We got in the car. We drove to Recovery Plus. I lived not even a mile from Recovery Plus at that point, which was really a cool thing. Yeah. Um, so we got there and they, they got me in for an assessment because when somebody goes to treatment, they have to assess how much they're drinking to see, you know, if they have to hospitalize them, um, to, uh, help them withdraw from whatever they're using. So, um, luckily I was not at that point. And, um, they, they did my assessment. They, they said, yep, you would you would qualify for treatment here and i started treatment i think like if not that the next day like the next week and so october 15th of 2011 is the day that i became sober and that i'm coming up on 10 years of sobriety that's amazing yeah that is super incredible it's so cool i i and i want to i want to get into what rehab was like for you. But before that, you know, you, you talked about during your use, you, you, you didn't treat your family nicely. No, you know, you were mean to them. And so here, here you come knocking at their door at 2am, they take you in and it sounds like they just loved on you. Like they, they didn't harbor any like grudges Mm. against you or anything like that for, you know, stealing from them they just loved on you. And, you know, you, you talked about your dad breaking down. What was that like just feeling and experiencing that love from, from your family? And it sounds like one of the darkest times of your life. Yeah. I think it was, it, it reminded me when I was a kid again, 
because I missed that so much. Like, that's who I remembered them being. And um, I think as I grew up and I thought I knew better and I thought I was smarter than them, they became a little bit more callous towards me. And I think just breaking down and needing their help again, they really offered me that unconditional love that I miss so much as a child. Yeah. Yeah. That is awesome. I just think of the prodigal son yeah. in, in scripture, you know, <laughs> right. in, in, in the gospels where, yeah, the, one of the boys just kind of takes off and, yes, and lives exactly. that party lifestyle yeah. and, uh, ends up just, you know, kind of falling on his face mm-hmm. and, comes back to his dad and, you know, is kind of worried, how is dad going to respond? You know, what's, Mm -hmm. how am I going to be accepted or will I be accepted? And dad just fully embraced him and loved him. And that sounds exactly like what happened in your case. Yeah. And the brother in the story was like, what, what's going on? (laughs) But my brother wasn't like that. He was like, oh yeah, that's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) So you had his support too. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. And so, yeah, you, you're coming up on 10 years sober. Yeah. What was, what was, uh, your time at recovery plus like? It was amazing. I, I think that my idea of treatment and what act, what treatment is actually like were so different. Um, I, 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 when I was in treatment, I never, ever wanted to come back. Like I was like, I'm going to get in here and I'm going to get out of here and I'm never, ever, ever coming back. And so they taught me so many skills that I never knew that I needed or wanted, but they were so good for me. Um, they teach you skills like, um, identifying, um, like faulty thinking and things like that. And, um, how to replace bad thoughts with good thoughts and just helpful skills for living, you know? So you have to graduate through different levels of treatment. And the, the first level is like just getting you sober and just, just trying to get you out of that addiction mindset, because I mean, it really does become all you think about. And, um, and, and just giving you, a, a fresh start and kind of like trying to pull you out a, away from it. And, and so teaching you new skills, like what am I going to do with all my time? Because all my time was spent like drinking or, you know, the effects of drinking, which is being passed out almost all day. And so I had to learn a lot about who I was and I like it. You've learned about me. I didn't know who I was. And so um, one of the biggest things for me in treatment that they helped me to understand was like, let's get back to when you were a kid, what were some of the things that you really enjoyed? And when I was younger, I enjoyed art. I loved art. So I started going to art stores in town and walking around and like trying to figure out what might be some things that I might enjoy. And I started trying out different things like painting and, you know, card making. And I would just take different classes. And it was so therapeutic for me, like beading, just different types of things. So there was a piece of that that came out of it that I still use today. It's definitely morphed and taken on new life every, I think like every year, like it's just been so different. I come back to different things, but then I pick up new things and it's just served me in so many different ways. Um, so that's been super therapeutic for me in a sense. And, um, another thing was, um, okay, like that takes up a part of your time, but you can't craft all the time. Right. So they're like, what else did you do when you were a kid? Well, I loved riding my bike. Okay, well, that's moving your body and being active. Well, when I first got into recovery, that's not something that was like front and center for me. But as I started having kids, it did become like a very important thing to me. And I realized it was important to me. So just, I don't know, it's it's interesting how um, like you can say recovery and it can mean so many different things to different people. 
Um, but I think just how much I learned in my time in treatment and how much they can say one thing to you and it'll mean so many different things at different points in my life. And, um, I did start seeing a therapist in treatment and at first it was just to stay sober and to kind of work through some of those identity issues that I first had. And like, who am I? Like, and some of those questions were, how, how does somebody even know who they are? Like, how do you know who you are, Terry? Like what, what makes you, you? Mm -hmm. And and they're like, well, that's something you just have to find out for yourself. It's like, but how do you do that? Like, what does that mean? You know, like, and that was the really fun part is like, I was kind of like starting over. It was not fun at the time. Because how old were you when you were doing all this? I was 23 or 24. So, I mean, I started drinking at like 18 and I went from like zero to 60 in not very many years, yeah. you know? <laughs> so, um, but I think a really important part of this that I'm leaving out is, um, so, uh, so backing up to like when I was 13, I started going to a Christian camp called Camp Lebanon and I encountered God for the first time. And I knew that I was special and that I was loved and that I was made in his image. I learned that all there. And um, and then I started, you know, going to River of Life Youth Group when I was like 16. A friend brought me there and Kirby St. John um, gave the, you know, call uh, to give your life to Christ. And I heard that message and I did it like right away. That was important to me. Like, That's awesome. Yeah, it was so cool. Um, and I did some youth camps with uh, River of Life. But then I fell away from God really, really quickly. I got, I don't know what happened, but it was almost like all these past hurts that I had had um, came creeping back up with some things that were happening in my teenage years. And I was like, where is God in all of this? Where is he? Like, if he really loved me and if he really set me apart and if I was really made in his image, why would he let any of this happen to me? Why Why would, you know, why would all these people be mean to me? And why would all this happen? And um, so I was really like mad at God for a long, long time. And so when I think of treatment, it's really when I saw God again and, um, he, t he spoke to me again and he, he really just hugged me. Like he just, he, it was when I opened my heart to him again because I had been so hardened and, um, and it's like, he just, he just melted me and he, he, he really just loved on me and he showed me that I am made for more than what I had been putting myself through. Like you can be happy and, and you can live a life that is meaningful and purposeful and you can love other people and you can be happy. And it wasn't until like, so I, I, like we were talking about, I hadn't finished my degree. And once I had Lily, my daughter, my oldest daughter, I was like, I want to go back to school and I want to finish my degree. So I was in recovery probably um, two years at this point, two or three years. And I was like, yep, I want to go back. I want to finish my degree. So I took some classes about addiction because I wanted to know more about like the scientific background of addiction. Yeah. So I started taking these classes about addiction and I started to understand and to learn that addiction is not familial. It's not necessarily passed down generationally. And I learned that it's trauma-based. And that for me was a huge moment. It was like, oh 
man, maybe I went through all of this in my past to help people in the future. Mm. Like it gave it meaning. Yeah. And that was huge for me because I think giving meaning to hurt, I don't know. I, it, I, I've heard the saying, your greatest test will become your greatest testimony. And so I can just see so much glory coming out of like all the hurt that I went through, you know? Praise God. Yeah. That is so cool. Yeah. When you, when you say that addiction is rooted in trauma, and I definitely agree with that, I, I think a lot of people, when they hear trauma, they just think of like, you know, people that served overseas, you know, in the army or people that were raped or people that, you know, were exposed to like a mass shooting or, or something like that. And those definitely are traumas, but traumas can include being told just nasty things yeah. about yourself over and over again. Like it doesn't have to be like this huge, like, um, catastrophic thing yeah. that, uh, you know, constitutes a trauma. It can be our words, you know, and as you were talking, I just thought of that phrase that I was taught growing up. And I, I think maybe you did too. A lot of kids did, but that whole sticks and stones may hurt your or break your bones, but words will never hurt you. And what a load of crap that is, right? Yeah. Like words are super powerful. There's a reason scripture says that the tongue is the strongest part of our body. You know, mm -hmm. we can use it to build people up or, or destroy uh, people. And so what was the, the process of kind of going through that trauma and addressing it and dealing with it instead of running away from it and, and um, disguising it with alcohol? Yeah, I think it's, so I think that this is something that I'm going to have to peel back for the rest of my life. I mean, I really do because it comes out in so many weird, different ways. Like, um, but initially just hearing that addiction is rooted in trauma was so validating to me because going to treatment, it was like, well, you know, you, you know, it probably came from one of your family members. Well, neither of my parents were alcoholics. So it was like, well, I'm just the weirdo here that, you know, is just the weird alcoholic that, you know, sure. I don't know. So it was so validating to me to hear that. And then I started to understand and name my trauma. And it's been this process where I did see a therapist and we did work on it and I had to name it. Like I had to, I had to, I had to name the things that were said about me that weren't true. And I had to go to the Bible and see what was said about me, you know, that see I am truth. Yeah. That I'm dearly loved and that I am chosen, you know, and just, I have to speak those words over my life because that's the only, I mean, you think about it all of those years, I heard, you know, the bad things. Now I have to speak life over myself and it might, I, I, I feel like sometimes people are like, Oh, come on, just get over it. But it's like, this is my life and this is my reality and this is my truth. And it's like, I'm sorry that you don't understand it, but I want to live my best life. Yeah. And, and it's okay if you don't get it, but just let me live my life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Amen. Amen. When, when you talked about God melting your heart, did that just kind of take place spontaneously, like in, in just a private moment for you or, what was that? What did that include going back to church or having a friend, you know, speak into your life? No, I just, it was like, he just like exploded into me. It was so funny. <laughs> it was like, I was just there and they were talking about higher power. And I'm like, you mean God? Like, <laughs> <laughs> like it was like all of a sudden I remembered like God, like, you know, they were talking about higher power and I was like, God, you know, and I understand that everybody identifies that differently in recovery. But for me, that's what that is. And, and God really did. He was like, yeah, I'm still here <laughs> because my God has a sense of humor. <laughs> yes. Amen. 
Amen. <laughs> you were in treatment for two to three years? Or mm. seeking out help at Recovery Plus for two to three years? Or what no, was... I, I was at Recovery Plus. I think it was like, so the aftercare program, I think, ended up being like, I think I was there for like six to 12 months. Um, six months for sure. Because I remember driving, we lived, we moved and I, I remember I was driving back and forth every day and then every couple of days and then it kind of dwindled off after that. Okay. Yeah. Cause they, they want you to have like a follow-up plan to make sure you're, you know, keep it on the right track and everything. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, going back to Josiah, what, what role did he play in, in your recovery? Oh gosh. Yeah. So my family, thank you for asking that because I really do credit them with a lot of why I'm still sober. I know it come, if it comes down to my, the relationship I have with God and, um, but I really do believe he placed my parents and Josiah's super big supports in my life for a reason. Um, when I first got into treatment, um, Josiah and my parents, they were both at the family meetings that they held at Recovery Plus. I think it was like every Monday or every Tuesday, there was a meeting for family members and they were able to earn their own medallion for going to like six weeks of classes or something like that. They also had um, this really unique uh, class or, um, yeah, we'll call it class, where the family would write a letter to the addict and then the addict would respond to the letter and then the family could write a letter back and then the addict could write a letter back. And that was so healing. Um, and it was, that really was probably the most healing part of treatment because it's, it doesn't, addiction doesn't just impact the person using, it impacts everybody around them. Yeah. And so if you can heal that, that chaos that surrounds you, it's, it's just that much more helpful. Do you still have those letters? I have the ones that my parents wrote to me. I can't find the ones that I wrote. I wish I did, though. Yeah, that was... That'd be kind of cool to just to look back and see where you were at in that time of your life and how far you've come since then. I know. Yeah, I think about that a lot. Yeah. By the time this comes out, you know, it's going to be 10 years sobriety for you. Mm -hmm. What, What have been the biggest keys in you keeping your sobriety, maintaining your sobriety? Yeah. Well, certainly my faith um, has been number one, Uh, just recognizing that I can't do it alone. There's no way looking back at who I was. This is, this is a heart change. This is a, this is not a, this is not Mackenzie making this change. This is a God changing my heart. This is a heart change. Um, there's just no way looking back at who I was that I did this on my own. I just, I cannot, you cannot make me believe that. Mm-hmm. And um, so number one, my faith. Uh, number two, definitely having the support of my family, my husband, um, and my friends. That's something that I didn't really talk about. But um, I was like, because of the past hurt, um, I was I was very scared of having relationships with people. And so... Um, kind of working through that and, and developing relationships as an adult and having friendships with people, um, that's been very healing for me. And so definitely my family and friends and, and continuing to work on relationships with people has been a big, big piece of it. Because if I don't, there's, there is a chance that, I mean, I'm just one drink away from being an alcoholic again. You know, yeah. You mentioned earlier about still uh, having a hard time making that separation between making friendships. You know, not having it be relied on by the external things, but more so just for who you are. And so, how do you continue to navigate through that? Yeah, I think it's hard because um, (sighs) I'm not sure how to answer that because. I do, I, 
I think one of my love languages is gift giving. <laughs> mm-hmm. So that's hard too, because I do love to gift people things. So it's hard to tease that apart. Like how much of this is being fueled by trying to win someone over because I do like gift giving too. So I don't know. It's hard to tease that apart, but um, I'm not sure how to answer that, Terry. Yeah. No, it's okay. Yeah. I think more so for me, the hardest thing about friendships is that not so much that part of it, but um, I think the hardest thing about adult relationships is feeling scared of being hurt and um, truly showing people who I really am because I know that I'm a good person, um, but then being afraid that once once you know who I am, that I'm just going to be hurt. And then, I don't know, the relationship I've built with you is going to crumble or something like that. Yeah. I don't know. It's like a real fear for me that I have to, to just deal with. Yeah. yeah. And it goes to show the power of, again, those comments that were made to you as a kid and just how, even though you've gotten so much healing over the years, that those things can still linger. Yeah. Uh, but, man, with the grace of God and and mm-hmm. the continued support of your friends and family, I have no doubt that... Um, you're just going to continue to continue to become more confident in, in who you are and yeah. maybe have an easier time letting your guard down and, mm-hmm. and letting people see the real you. Yeah. Because, again, folks, this is the first time I've gotten to talk to Mackenzie in a setting like this. And holy cow, this is an awesome mm-hmm. person I'm talking to here. Thanks. <laughs> Mackenzie, you mentioned uh, finding uh, purpose in your trauma and and you took some classes on addiction and so tell us kind of where where that path led you yeah it's super cool so um so really I didn't set out to like I had said when I went to treatment I never ever ever wanted to go back to a treatment facility and God was like well let's let's slow down a little bit here so I went back to school and I took classes in addiction and I was like, oh, I really like this. This is cool. (laughs) (laughs) So he's like, okay, well, maybe you should go to school for that and go back to the treatment center. But as like a therapist and not, you know, in treatment. And um, so I, man, my grades were so bad. I think I was at like a one point. Eight, nine, or something really bad. I mean, it was, I was failing out. So, um, worked really hard. I, um, I, I think I had enough credits to get like a general, like a general BA in general education or something like that. And so somehow I was able to get a bachelor's, able to get my GPA enough to graduate with what I had to get done. And then um, there was this opportunity that came up through one of my professors in the addictions class that I took. She's like, you know, you're so good in my class. You should, you, you ask all the right questions. You seem really passionate about this. You should look into our master's program for addictions counseling. And I was like, really? I don't know. I mean, a master's program that seems like kind of above, you know, where I'm at. And she's like, yeah, just look at it, you know, just see if, if it interests you, see what you think. So I'm like, okay, well, so I looked at it and I was like, wow, I don't know. The requirements seemed, you know, like they wanted you to have like a three or a 3.5 GPA. And I was like, well, that's out the window. And, you know, wanted some like recommendations from professors. I could, I could do that. And, um, so I was like, well, I prayed about it, tried, I applied and I ended up getting in and I was like, wow. Like that was just a big, like huge thing for me. So I went through the program. I ended up getting a 4.0 in the program. Wow. Uh, yeah, it was huge. I, um, I was in, uh, their, uh, what do you call it? Like their fraternity. I don't know, like the master's program. Uh, like it was called Chi Sigma Iota. Oh, okay. Yep. Like, I don't know, like Greek program or whatever. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's, yeah, fraternity. Yeah, yep. okay. So um, I was in that and um, had honors. That was pretty cool. So I don't know, it just, it's such a, I don't say that to brag. I say that as like such a redemption story Amen. of, 
okay, look where I was at to where I was, like where I ended, you know? And so, um, but yeah, so it, it was just such a, a transformation and, and I was able to work with women. The, the best part was working with women going through early recovery and just believing in them. My favorite part of working with these women was unconditional positive regard, believing in them no matter what and believing the best in them no matter what. You know, I think when you believe in people, it really changes how they feel about themselves. And I don't know, I just, it it really, it really, when you continue to, you can believe in somebody one time or two times, but when you continue to believe in somebody, it changes the way they think about themselves. And you could see these women just transform. And my supervisor and I, this was something that she and I did together, and it was like, these women just changed before your eyes. Like they got jobs and they were so excited to come and tell you they got a job. And it was just the coolest thing, you know? Wow. Yeah. yeah. Talk about God using the the mess that you've been through in your life for, for good. Yeah. You know, I, I think that's just written all over your story. You talked about, um, people believing in you in, mm-hmm. in, so that you can think differently about yourself. I even think about that professor that believed enough in you to, to yeah. encourage you to join the program. Yeah. Because yeah. you know, if, if it wasn't for her, do you think you would have sought no. that program and out? You know what is so interesting is there are people that God, I really do think God has used people throughout my journey to encourage me along the way because um, I didn't share, but there when when i was trying to figure out who i was um one of the things they suggested you do is volunteer to try to figure out you know where's your heart at you know what might be the things you care about so i was volunteering at catholic charities um uh drop-in center for people with severe and persistent mental illness and i was their intake coordinator and so i was i guess i was doing such a great job that the um my supervisor was like, you know, you should really go back to school. You should go back to school. You're so good at this. You should go back to school. She kept, she kind of kept pestering me about it. And I was like, you think so? I don't know. I'm not that great at school. Like did not believe in myself. She's like, and then she got her supervisor to start telling me to go back to school. Like, you're so good at it. You should go back to school. And then she got that supervisor to, like, I had three people at Catholic Charities telling me I should go back to school. It was like, okay, I'll look into it. And that's where I got the idea of looking to see how many credits I had because the kind of like the head person at this part of Catholic Charities was like, well, I got my generalist degree because I had so many credits. And that's where I got the idea to even do that. So had it not been for these three amazing women at Catholic Charities, I don't know that I would have even known about that, you know? So it's just so cool how, yeah, I think God does put people in our path to encourage us and keep us moving in the right direction. For sure. For sure. And you just recently graduated with your master's degree. It was, yeah. It was during um, quarantine. So I had a virtual graduation. Okay. It was very interesting. Yeah, I bet that's not what you expected. It was not as gratifying as I had hoped it would be. <laughs> yeah. So what are what are your plans now that you are, you know, graduated, you have your master's degree and and are you a licensed alcohol and drug counselor? I sure am. Yep. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Yeah. What what are your plans with that? Um I am not sure. I I had been accepted to a doctorate program at St. Mary's in the Twin Cities um, for, it was a doctor of psychology, and I was pursuing that. And then um, they had shut down the elementary, I have three kids, and they shut down the elementary schools last fall, and I wanted to homeschool my kids. And it was just way too much to try to homeschool and do a program like that. And God really put it on my heart to be home with my kids. So I definitely, I I did step back from that. I think in the future, um, I definitely like to still pursue a doctorate. I, I really, um, they say you, you pursue a doctorate if you want to research. I definitely want to research the, the, 
So there's something called you're you're going to be familiar with this, but I just want to. Um, it's the Adverse Childhood Experiences Survey. Yep. Um, I, I think they do a really good job of outlining trauma in the home in the survey. I I think that it could go further in understanding trauma outside the home, like in school, like I experienced. I think that that's a missing component of it, and I'd like to understand more about that. So I think if I were to go back for a doctorate, it would be to understand how there's some of that external trauma that could be worked into that potentially. That's incredible. Yeah. That is incredible. Yeah. What would you say to people listening to this who are struggling either with addiction, with body image, Mm -hmm. with just not knowing who they are? What, what advice would you give them? Um, I would say to seek out, um, a trusted friend or family member. And if you don't have that, find, um, a therapist that you can talk to and, um, and, and ask them or, or find help somewhere. Um, that can be a really hard thing to do when you're in a really dark spot So I would say if you can't do that, pray and ask God to reveal it to you. It can be a really hard spot to be, especially if it's a really dark part in your life. But um, I would try to find somebody that you can talk to about it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So cool how, like you said, how God really redeemed everything that you've been through and, and given purpose for everything that you've been through. And it's, it's been incredible getting to hear your story and uh, I'm excited for everyone else to listen to this as well. My final question for you, Mackenzie, you talked about not knowing who you were for a, a good majority of your life. So asking you today, who is Mackenzie? Mm, that makes me really excited. <laughs> <laughs> I am the coolest person ever because I can answer that question. Um, awesome. I am a baker. I love crafting. Um, I am a wonderful mother. I'm a wife. I, um, I love pinball. I'm looking at my pinball <laughs> machines. I'm funny. I'm a nerd. I'm a Disney fanatic. Um, I'm, uh, I wouldn't say a runner. I'm more of a yogger. (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah, I, I love cycling. There's a lot about me that I could keep going on and on and on. Um, but I am, I am, yeah, I, there's, it's just so cool to, I'm, I'm still discovering who I am. Well, Kenzie, thank you so much for, for coming on here and sharing your story. It was wonderful getting to, to meet you. And uh, I'm I'm so thrilled that people are going to be able to hear your story and uh, hopefully connect with it and be encouraged and be inspired by it. Yeah, thanks so, so much. Well, what an incredible testimony Mackenzie has, am I right? It's so cool to hear how she's able to love herself and recognize the value she has after struggling that with so much of her life and to be free from addiction. I really hope McKinsey's testimony inspires and encourages anyone currently struggling with alcoholism, body image, or addictions of any kind. And if you guys have any questions for McKinsey after listening to her story, go to the Testimonies with Terry podcast Facebook page or Instagram profile, find the post for this episode, and use the hashtag AskTWT to ask a question, and McKinsey will select a few to answer. Thanks again to McKinsey for being so raw and transparent with her story, and thank you for taking the time to listen. Make sure to subscribe and follow this podcast wherever you listen to the podcast, and please leave a five-star review. Reviews are super important to the podcast algorithms in terms of giving this show visibility and making it easy for people to find. So if you guys could take just a few seconds to leave a five-star review, I'd really appreciate it. I'll be back next week with another episode, but in the meantime, be blessed and live your life in a way that glorifies God and kicks Satan's butt.